Amen. If you have your Bibles, please, oh, actually, thank you, Bonnie, and thank you, or not Bonnie, Linda. Thank you, Linda. Thank you, Harriet. Now she's going to go back and tell Bonnie that I said her name was Bonnie. (sighs) Oh, my. Anyway, um, thank you for that. If you were turning your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to go from verses 1 through 5. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. May God bless the reading of his word. So today, we're continuing on with what Paul and Timothy have been writing. And and to be honest, these five verses go tie very tightly with the verses that came before at the end of chapter 1. And because of that, we're going to see a lot of similar themes in these verses, as Paul talks especially about um, his relationship with these different congregations um, and these these people. And so it's also something interesting to see, okay, what he senses is his calling, despite not having ever met them. So let's go ahead and see what Paul has to say, and Timothy as well. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. Paul now discusses his struggle that he has had for those in Colossae as well as for those in Laodicea. The question we want to ask is, what does the struggle entail? How has he struggled? It could mean a many number of things. It could mean his prayer life for them or through continued proclamation of the gospel. It can mean also the struggle that comes with the labor of teaching those who have come into the faith and conversely struggling against false teachers. All of these things are a struggle. Now, to pick one in particular would likely miss the point. Instead, all of these things represents Paul Particular's ministry, what he has been doing. He has been faithful to proclaim, he, to teach, and to admonish believers, and to warn against false teachings, and to even argue against false teachers. Thus, the whole element of his ministry is likely in view as a complete struggle in this life. Though one could argue that his defense of the faith and the defense of uh, uh, on behalf of others, of believers, against false teachings, would have the greatest impact of struggle, especially when we know his life. <laughs> I mean, he struggled against Jews, he was beaten, he was um, stoned. He, he struggled a lot in these areas because of what he was teaching. And now he particularizes Colossae and Laodicea here. Laodicea was approximately 10 miles away from Colossae and was considered one of the cities in the Lycan Valley, which included Hierapolis. Um, It is interesting that Hierapolis is not mentioned at this point, as it's mentioned later in the letter. It might be that Hierapolis didn't have a strong, uh, of a believing community as Colossae and Laodicea, which is true at the time they didn't. But it seems more likely that they were not in danger to the false teachings which these two other congregations have come into contact with. So he specifies here Laodicea and Colossae. Ultimately, He recognizes his apostolic ministry by recognizing his struggles not only for the Colossians or the Laodiceans, but all 
who have not seen him face to face. In other words, those who have never met Paul in person. As such, Paul may here recognize his apostolic ministry and authority in recognizing he has a responsibility to all believers regardless of whether or not he personally has visited them or founded even the congregation as he did for so many churches in the area. Now verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Um, That's a lot. (laughs) A lot for one verse and a mouthful, and it's not even a complete sentence. The purpose of Paul's struggle is for the body of Christ. His goal is to encourage their hearts. The term heart here does not merely denote emotion, the way that we often think about it in modern times. Instead, it recognizes one's affections, and how one's affections will very often, if not always, direct, dictate their lives. But in what way is this encouragement meant to lead? It obviously must go somewhere. Their hearts can't simply be encouraged, but must be encouraged to something. He gives us the answer in two ways. The first is that they would be knit together in love. Love here, as we have very often seen, does not denote the emotional love which we think of, the same way that heart doesn't necessarily mean the emotional aspect. Instead, it is more reminiscent of the love found in 1 Corinthians 13, which is a spiritual gift. To be knit together recognizes a community of love that watches over one another. Yet it goes further than this. It is not enough for them to have love for what is love. How do we define love? Thus Paul recognizes that love alone is not enough for the community. But they must also reach the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's knowledge, um, which is Christ. We see again themes which have permeated this section of the scripture. Mystery, knowledge, understanding. It reminds us of the necessity to be continually seeking the Lord with our minds as well as our hearts. Never being satisfied to know some, but seeking to know all the riches of full assurance which comes from God in Christ. Now the foundation for both these things, for love and the foundation for the knowledge and understanding, is the mystery itself which is Jesus. As we understand it then, Christ is the main focal point for the Christian faith. The entirety of the Christian worldview, so to speak, and how we understand this world is to be founded on Jesus, the preeminent one, the visible image of the invisible God. Now verse 3. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And Paul gets to it, doesn't he? (laughs) What Moo calls the high point of Christologically for the letter. And Christologically, it's Christology means the study of Jesus or the study of Christ. While admittedly not being as poetic as the Jesus hymn found in the first chapter, it does make the point rather splendidly that it is in Christ all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. This hiddenness does not reflect the mystery revealed. It goes further with the treasures. Often, one will hide one's treasures. In Christ, that treasure is revealed in the wisdom and knowledge of God. When it comes to wisdom and knowledge, Paul is reminding us that we do not need more wisdom and knowledge for our lives in regards to salvation and how to live for God. 
Christ is sufficient for salvation. We are in not need of anything other than Christ for this great salvation. Likewise, it reflects what we have already seen, that in Christ one has a foundation for one's entire life. And we'll unpack a lot of that later. (laughs) Verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Paul now reflects on why he is bringing this encouragement, and the answer is a simple one, that false teachers would not come into their midst. There is a possibility that one false teacher who is able to communicate well might come into their congregation and teach them something fallacious. Perhaps there is some other teacher other than Christ which one needs to know, for example, or some other teaching other than Christ. That's what they'll say. Paul, however, argues against this, reminding them that there is no need for some other kind of learning or some other foundation apart from Christ, because it is Christ all the treasures of knowledge and understanding itself can be found. Thus, logically, why would you need anything else? If we were to reflect on the Christological hymn even, we see the notion is rather absurd. Christ is preeminent before all of creation, the visible image of the invisible God. What else would be necessary other than him? The answer Paul gives is nothing. Christ is completely sufficient. Now verse 5. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul now reflects back onto the original point in verse 1. Though Paul, um, through, though Paul not be with them and see them face to face, nor have they ever met, Paul is still with them. Uh, we want to be careful when it comes to what it means for Paul to be with them in spirit. It may represent one of two things. The first is the way we often are with uh, people we're emotionally or spiritually connected to, despite not being physically present. We think that we're with them or we know we're with them. Um, We can all think of individuals we love, for example, who are simply with us and we with them regardless of distance. And I have friends like that in New Jersey. I have family like that in New Jersey. You do too, and maybe not in New Jersey, but other words. Um, Yet it may also reflect their relationship now in the Spirit of God. Their new relationship through the Spirit of God, which connects all believers together, binding them all in Christ. Ultimately, Either interpretation works in context, and perhaps both might ultimately be in view by Paul, who recognizes both elements, that they are bound together by the Spirit in this new familial relationship with each other, and that because of this, Paul is with them emotionally, spiritually, though not physically. This leads Paul to rejoicing, and seeing their good order and firmness in their faith in Christ. Of course, Paul would rejoice over this, but what does it mean for him to see it? It likely calls to mind what he has heard concerning their faith and the continued steadfastness they have had held concerning Christ. Despite opposition, they have remained faithful, and as such, the gospel has been bearing good fruit in the congregation. And this is seen how they have good order and firmness on their faith in Christ. And that is the whole point. Christ must be the foundation for them. For any other foundation would be less than supreme. Christ, being above all, preeminent before all, greater than all, is sufficient for them and worthy of all of their faith. The more they remain fixated on Christ, the more ordered they are toward him, and the firmer they are on him, then the likelier it will be for them to remain steadfast in the future.
Thus Paul commands them for how they should have, how they should have been, uh, commends them for how they should have been and what they are doing, but continues to warn them to remain and stake on the course. All right. So the main point of these verses are for Paul to discuss his own relationship with these believers. Despite not having started these churches, being the planner, as we would say today, or even seeing them, he still cares for them and seeks to shepherd them unto the Lord. As such, he commends them for the good things that they are doing and encourages them to keep going by continuing to focus on Christ. He is the foundation for them, the great mystery which has been revealed, and in him are the hidden treasures. And so Paul warns them not to fall into false teachings, but to remain steadfast in the faith. All right. In today's text, we read read something rather interesting. Actually, I think there's a lot interesting in this. Um, But that in particular, how was Paul, or how Paul says that Christ Jesus is the mystery of God revealed, and in whom are all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge? The question we want to ask is, What does that mean exactly? Does this mean that we do not need any more knowledge? Does this mean that once we know who Jesus is, we no longer need to learn anything more? Now, some have taken this to be what Paul is saying, yet I would say that is not the case. Why do I not think that this is the case? Well, if Paul was implying that Jesus was all we needed to know, then he would have ended the letter right there. Likewise, it would mean the majority of other things which Paul talks about in his letter and in other letters would be rather pointless. If Christ is the only thing we are to learn or to consider, then why talk about anything else? So if this is not what Paul is saying, if he isn't saying that we should only learn about Jesus and then be done, then what is he saying? Personally, I would say that Paul is presenting us with the cornerstone of the Christian faith, the Christian worldview. The cornerstone of our faith, of the Christian religion, is Jesus Christ. A cornerstone is used for a building or a structure. It is the foundational piece, um, the necessary piece in order for all the other pieces to stand firm and to remain standing. We have a cornerstone right over here. I think it's over there. Is it over there? Oh, well, still. Good for us. We are (laughs) well-founded. Um, Jesus speaks of himself in this way when he quotes Psalm 118 and he says this in Matthew 21 Jesus said to them have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone this was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes later Peter says the same thing at the Jewish council in Acts 4 this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you the builders which has become the cornerstone And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This seems to be the point that Paul is making. When it comes to the knowledge of God, his wisdom and his understanding, Jesus is the cornerstone. When it comes to our faith, Jesus is the cornerstone. When it comes to the Christian worldview, the way that we are to perceive the world around us, Jesus is the cornerstone. In other words, it is not that Jesus is the only thing we are to learn, but instead it is in Christ that all wisdom, knowledge, and understanding are made known. It is by him that we are able to know God and be known by God. And it is because of Jesus, who is the mystery revealed, and it is in him that all the treasures dwell. 
Yet it goes further than this. God did not save us in order for us to no longer keep thinking. I always quote Mike. You know, let my people think, (laughs) is what Mike likes to say. He wants us to love him with all of our hearts, minds, and souls, and strength. Thus, it isn't as though once we have this mental ascent um, of Jesus Christ as the Lord, that all is said and done with our minds. It is not as though there is nothing more to learn, nothing left to accomplish with our minds. Thus, when Paul discusses Christ as the one in whom the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden, and thereby whom we, they are made known, it goes much further than salvation. It goes to the realization that Jesus is preeminent above all others, the one by whom and for whom the whole cosmos was created. What we have often referred to as the Christian worldview, how we understand the world around us is to be anchored, is to be laid upon um, Jesus Christ, who is the mystery revealed. In this way, God is not calling us to no longer seek knowledge, but to seek his knowledge. He is not calling us to not seek understanding, but to seek to gain his understanding. He's not calling us to not gain wisdom, but to gain his wisdom. This begins and ends with Christ as he guides us the rest of our lives and into eternity. Paul is providing us a schematic for a worldview which is transformative and lasting. It is one which puts all things in their proper perspectives. And we read in Total Truth, Nancy Piercy, she says, Christianity is the key that fits the lock of the universe. The reason for this is that it is only under Christianity that a complete worldview really exists one which allows us to gain all measures of knowledge, understanding, and wisdom because it has a foundation on God himself, and that is Jesus Christ. So what does this worldview entail? Well, everything. That is what is so wonderful about Jesus Christ. And we'll see this as Paul continues on in his letter. And as said previously, he doesn't end here because Christ is just the beginning, the cornerstone on which the rest of it then is laid. Thus, knowing Christ allows Paul then to consider everything from marriage to church function to familial relationships to proper doctrine, theology, philosophy, which is all founded on Christ. Consider that reality for a moment. That means everything in your life can be founded on Christ. You go outside on a warm day. You mow the lawn. You feed the birds. If you, I don't know if you do, but you might. You go for a walk. You play with your children or your grandchildren. You speak with your spouse. You look at the stars. You read a book. You debate. You quilt. You sew. You make dinner. You wash the dishes. You go to work. You chop down a tree. You do paperwork. You go to sleep. You do it all for the glory of Jesus Christ. Mundane things that we would consider can all be done for the glory of God. But not only this, you educate yourself. You learn more about God. You gain wisdom through philosophy, theology. You learn more about the Bible. You stand firm on the faith. You do it for the glory of Jesus Christ. How is this possible? Because of Jesus Christ. Because in him are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge of God. You know what that further means? It means that if you are in Christ, you can have these treasures. It means Paul is encouraging you to seek out these treasures because you can if you are in Jesus. It means we need to learn because now that we are in Christ, we can attain these treasures. 
and the wealth of knowledge which has once been hidden, but it requires us to learn and to seek it because it can now be found. So when we consider the reality of the gospel and what Jesus accomplishes in it, it means that it is a total transformation of our hearts and minds. As such, let this transformation come. Let us be transformed by the renewing of our minds by Christ, letting him be the cornerstone of all aspects of our lives. Now, the second thing that came to mind, and this is the second week in a row, (laughs) we have had a quick look at the problem of false doctrines. Ultimately, Paul uses what the ESV translates as plausible arguments. Um, And this is a fair translation. reminds us that false doctrines, bad teachings, and poor theology aren't going to be packaged in a way which doesn't entice us. (laughs) Last week, um, I used... The argument by those who think we should use worldly wisdom as a means to grow congregations. And they will bring in experts of sociology and say, if you offer this, this, and that, then we can make your church grow 200% a year every year for the next 10 years unless the culture changes. Then we'll change our program to make it look even more enticing to people around you so that you can continue to grow and all at a low, low price of this. I mean, it sounds plausible, doesn't it? I mean, it it could certainly cause the church to grow. It certainly could bring a number of new individuals into the congregation for worship. Sure, it might even cause some kind of fire, right? Some kind of emotional draw, goosebumps. The question is, would this be the case um, of us being swayed by plausible arguments? Would it be us saying, well, they're the experts. It sounds reasonable. And their presentation is so nice. Let's just do it. Well, that's fine and dandy, but then we need to ask another question. Is this the definition of church growth in the Bible? Is church growth measured in numbers? Is it measured by how many people you have in your congregation? How many members a congregation has? What then is the measurement of growth? What is it? Now, I'm going to argue against all of the social experts who believe that they have an accurate understanding of growth and claim to have all the sophistication and means in order to provide church growth. I'm going to argue that the arguments made by many when it comes to growth are what Paul says are plausible arguments alone. Now, how do we know this? The answer is what we've found in Colossians already. Consider what we read in chapter 1. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it, does, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. All right. What does any of that have to do with growth, and how are you going to convince us that the experts are wrong? I'm sure one of you is asking yourself that. Well, consider the first half of verse 6, which describes the gospel as bearing fruit and increasing. So what bears fruit? What increases? The gospel. In other words, the focus is not in their ability to cause growth among themselves. It is the gospel in them. In these areas, which is causing the fruit to grow and increase. It is the power of God alone which causes the increase of fruit. That is the essence of growth. 
That is what we as congregations should be seeking when it comes to growth, a deeper, greater understanding of the gospel and all it entails, because the gospel is what causes the growth to begin with. The more faithful we are to the gospel, to the mystery revealed, to Jesus Christ, the more we will find personal growth and growth within our congregations as a whole. Will that growth bring about more people coming into our congregations? Who knows? Maybe. The simple truth is, that's never been a concern for the church for 2,000 years. The concern for the church has ever been more knowledge of God, more encouragement, more teaching, more understanding of this great God. The question we must all ask ourselves today is whether or not we are susceptible to plausible arguments. I would argue we are. They wouldn't be plausible if we weren't able to be persuaded by them. That's what makes them so interesting, so believable, is that they are, in fact, plausible. I'm going to pause for a second, Betsy. All right, so that's two times in a row I've dealt with church growth. Now, uh, some of you might be wondering, okay, why do you keep on hammering this? Why do you keep on talking about church growth and wondering, um, okay, what does this mean? And why do you keep on going back to that? And I think the answer is, is that I think it's one of the top five most damaging false teachings in the United States <laughs> in churches is this understanding that the bigger your churches are, the more healthier they are. That's not true. The biggest church in America is teaching heresy upon heresy right now. That's not true growth. True growth is found in the gospel. True growth is found when we are faithful to Jesus. It's as simple as that. And I get that everyone around us will measure their churches by this yardstick or that yardstick. But I say, I measure our church growth by how faithful you are to the gospel. It's as simple as that. Um, And that's why I think it's so important for us to keep on. If we're going to talk about false doctrines, we need to talk about them. And that's one of them. So that's just one reason why I keep on going back to it. Um, All right. Now another example because I don't want to just talk about bad doctrines in regards to growth. Let's talk about another one. (laughs) Uh, In today's text, we read that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. All right, so the second half of that verse we've discussed quite a bit. But let's consider the first half, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. To be knit together in love, what is a plausible argument that might be seen from this. Well, if we love people, we will accept everybody. It doesn't matter what they do. If we love them, we will look past these things. They don't even need to be a believer. For true love doesn't discriminate against anything. So we should be more accepting and loving towards those who are different from us. This kind of argument is used often, especially by those who argued, let's say, for marriage equality. Those who believe that, let's say, sexual immoral immoral acts are an acceptable practice, and the best thing for us to do is love such individuals who live in such a lifestyle. After all, we're supposed to be knit together in love, so why wouldn't we accept them? In fact, why are you just picking on sexual immorality? We need to include liars or those who commit adultery or thieves. 
All are loved and accepted by God and therefore should be loved and accepted by us. To be honest, that sounds nice. It sounds like a good argument, especially since we hear so much about love in the scriptures. The problem with this is that this concept of love is not anywhere close to the understanding we find within the scriptures. Instead, we find that God transforms us by his great love. That God doesn't accept you in your love for sin, but transform you, bring you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son. His love is not a love that simply accepts your sinful passions and desires, but cleanses you of them. To accept sin, to accept sinners simply as they are without reproaching them for their sins would be like watching a house burn down with the family inside and not calling 911. It would be like allowing someone to walk off a cliff without trying to stop them. It would be like having the cure for their incurable disease and not offering that cure. If we truly love one another, then we will desire that each of us battles against sin for the glory of God. If we truly love one another, then we will walk hand in hand in peace as we do these battles, praying for each other in our times of strength and weakness. If we love one another, we will walk side by side with each other on this very long road of faith, supporting one another, encouraging one another, being strengthened by one another, and leading one another further into the faith found in Christ. That is true love. It sacrifices. It is willing to put itself out there for the sake of truth. It will seek peace, true, but not at the expense of truth. It will commit itself to honoring God and desiring what is best for the other person, even if it means speaking truth into their lives, and even if that means them fighting against that. It means lovingly accepting rebuke and reproach at times if we are in the wrong. Plausible arguments are all around us. They will seek to distract us from the main course and will seek to cause us to turn to the left or the right instead of staying on the straight and the narrow. But if we know the scriptures, and if we know Christ, and if we allow Christ to be our foundation, our cornerstone, then we will be able to stand firm against plausible arguments regardless of their sound reasoning. So the question we then need to ask is, how do you and I keep ourselves from being deluded? Well, the answer that Paul gives is by knowing the truth. It is by knowing what is good, what is right, what is from God, that we are able to prevent ourselves from being easily swayed by those arguments which sound feasible. For Paul, and for all of us, Christ is the foundation of that. And from him grows out all truth which combat false teaching. In today's text, Paul manages to reiterate a similar point from last week. Of being warned and being taught. The warning is for us not to be duped by plausible arguments. The teaching is to be founded on God, on Christ. Knowing truth so that the plausible arguments lose their plausibility. So be encouraged by these things. Be encouraged to love, but to love rightly. Be encouraged to seek growth, but to seek true growth. 
Stand firm against plausible arguments which will lead you astray, and stand firm on the truth of the gospel now and forever. And that, that naturally leads us to the gospel. Um, now, in previous times, we've been able to kind of tell what part of the gospel is easily seen in, in the verses today. I'm going to say that it's only really one, but we're going to go over all of them anyway because I think it's important for us to always remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel because that's where we're founded on. It's on this, this Christ that we build everything else upon. Um, And so when it comes to origins, yes, the, the world was created by this great creator, this God, And he created all the cosmos by the power of his word, and he's that powerful. And he created humanity to bear his image. And in that bearing of his image, that means that we too have all these similar attributes to God, but not the same as God, because God is so much greater than we are. And ultimately, that means that all human life has dignity, has sanctity, has worth. And we should praise God for this. But despite how wonderfully... We're made, as the scripture says. The truth is, is that like God, we have free choice and we chose to sin against God. And because of that, we have broken relationships and we feel these broken relationships so much in our lives. And the problem then is, too, that because we sin against God, there's a debt that has to be paid. That there is a reality that we're stained and even our good works are broken. And there's nothing that we can do. But there is something that God can do. And he did it by sending his son, Jesus Christ, his word, in time, space, history, and flesh. And it is by him we find redemption. And and something that we did talk about today, and this is where I think it fits so wonderfully, is that in Christ are all the wisdom and the knowledge of God, the, the treasures of these things are found. And that means that the redemption is so great as to even knowledge and wisdom itself are cleansed in a way by Christ. And that makes you think, wow, the redemption that was found in Jesus goes so far. And it's so much more than maybe I think we think. And the redemption, it leads us to faith. And it leads us to walking rightly in the spirit to to repent of our sins. Because we see what God has done in love. And ultimately, that love leads us somewhere. And it's by God's grace that it leads us into his kingdom. Where we will experience his love forevermore if we are in that faith. And of course, there is the warning. That those who are not in that faith, they will experience judgment. And so it is important for us now, in the time that we have now, to continue to seek and to understand and to seek out this Jesus. Because we know the promise that those who are faithful will see growth. Those who are faithful will stay in the faith and that they will ultimately find eternal happiness in God. And so it's on this that we build our foundation. It is on this, this Jesus Christ who redeems all these things that we continue forward. So let him be your cornerstone now and forever. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have given us the strongest 
of foundations. That you have given us your son, Jesus Christ, who is the cornerstone of our faith. And in him, all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom dwell. And that means that if we are in him, that we can seek them and we can find them and we can attain them. And our entire lives can be transformed by Jesus Christ. Lord, let us not think that this redemption is something that only occurs in a small area of our lives. Let us remember always that it is a complete redemption that covers every aspect of our lives. And it is on him that we dwell. Again, we thank you for what you have done in your son, Jesus Christ. And we ask for your blessing in this way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.